0: The Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel and Bill Tate. Well, welcome to the studio, Doctor. We've only got one here with us today, unfortunately.
1: I know, yeah. Melbourne's, we are world dropping like flies in Melbourne.
0: Yeah, no. We
1: won't say he's got COVID.
0: No, he doesn't. Dr. Rod is, is uh, flat out um, looking after the young family at home um, and he couldn't join us tonight, which is very sad about it because we've got a pretty exciting episode and one I know he's he's pretty interested in.
1: Yeah. How are you going, Bill?
0: I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm ready for this to end and I'm hoping that um, everyone keeps their heads and stays away from St Kilda Beach this weekend so that we can maybe get a little bit of a rollback in a week. But, um,
1: yeah, my fingers crossed. Definitely looking better, looking better in tra- trajectory in, in Melbourne, so let's hope.
0: Yeah, so an exciting um, episode today. It's a bit of a throwback to a couple of episodes ago where we t- talked with uh, Dr. Larry Treese around the Rio Ribs project. Um, we've got one of our colleagues on board, which will be um, you know really popular, I think, with our audience. Do you want to do the intro, Doc?
1: Yeah, yeah, I will. So I love that chat with Dr. Larry. So Dr. Larry was um, our sports physician with the rowing team for at least two big Olympic cycles, and she was joined by her, I would say, just partner in crime or absolute, um, they were a team to be um, very much listened to. Force and force to be reckoned with. Well, I wouldn't say. <laughs> well, they were a force, that's for sure, but they were so helpful to our whole team over two Olympic cycles. And I think um, if I remember rightly, Kelly was with us just before the, the London cycle as well, in terms of her rowing team involvement. Now, Kelly, Kelly was one of the authors on the paper that we spoke about, and that was the incidence of injury and illness in the Australian rowing team for two Olympic cycles, and that was a wonderful episode, a couple of times, episode six, I think it was, um, and they've had a couple of other papers they've written together, a lot of clinical knowledge put together in research with low back pain, and rowing performance and particularly um, how it might relate to like the developing athlete and how we can sort of prevent injury, um, and and prolong your time in the sport and your enjoyment of the sport. So, I'd love to speak to Kelly today. Um, welcome, Kelly.
2: Hi, thanks for having me, Matt and Bill.
0: How's it going down there in Tassie, Kelly?
2: we are, of course, very fortunate. only had one lockdown period, unlike Melbourne, and um, we haven't had a community case of COVID for quite some time now. So things are getting back to normal for us. Um, certainly it's, a, it's living with a new normal. Um, we know our borders will probably open soon, and so we're having to put all of those measures in place to, to keep ourselves safe and to keep our businesses and practices safe as well. So it's certainly a challenging time, but um, we feel pretty fortunate that we've got kids back at school and sport and um you know, businesses running, back up and running at full capacity, actually probably more than that at the moment because people have gone back to sport and hurt themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, different different set of challenges right now, but uh, yeah, we're in a really fortunate position.
1: The whole definitely. of Melbourne is coming your way in a couple of weeks. No, don't worry. <laughs> as soon as I open that ferry, yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's great to have you, Kelly. Um, you know, you, you've been on our target list for a long time and um, it's really great to be able to do this off the back of, of Larry's one because I think there'll be a, some really interesting crossovers between the two. We, we want to cover um, a few topics to, in the episode. We're going to, first of all, talk about your background as an athlete and, and how you got into rowing as a practitioner. Um, then cover a little bit around this lower back pain in in rowing and sport um, and, you know, dig into your knowledge around that and talk, to of the project you've got in Growing Bodies, which I think is a really exciting thing that you've been building for a number of years. And also, our third topic we want to cover today is around your experience of working in the interdisciplinary teams within the high-performance environment because, of course, you spent a number of Olympics, you know, deeply embedded in... In that, so um, without further ado, we'll uh, kick on to the first topic. So, Cal, you're a swimmer originally, not a rower, so another water sport, and probably relatively familiar. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your history as an athlete?
2: Yeah, sure. I am. Um, I swam competitively from the age of eight until the age of nineteen um I was a backstroke swimmer and um was you know used to represent myself at national championships age and, and open wise, but um when I got to study physiotherapy being such a full time course trying to combine competitive swimming and, and physio was impossible from a, from an hours point of view and I needed to move interstate so sort to of south australia to study physio so to be able to keep both of those two things going. I tried for the first year and it was obvious that performance was going to suffer and I was there being supported by my family to um, start my physio degree. And look, I wish I probably had swum for another couple of years to, to realize my full potential. Um, but in saying that, I actually really fell in love with studying physiotherapy and probably loved it just as much as swimming. So it was actually quite an easy decision for me um, to put you know, more more attention, if you like, into my studies and, and give up swimming when I was 19 years of age.
0: And I mean, anyone who's ever um, worked with you or been treated by you will recognize that passion you have for, for health and physiotherapy. Um, but I imagine that the background in swimming must have held you in good stead coming into rowing given that there would in terms of the amount of training done the, you know the the feel for the water kind of stuff there's a, there is a lot of kind of sly crossover isn't there it must have given you some kind of footing coming into a slightly different sport like that
2: Yeah, it really did, and I hadn't been exposed to rowing at all through my schooling. I didn't know a lot about the sport, and um, I travelled a lot in my early days as a physio with Australian junior swim teams and a couple of um, open-water senior swimming teams. And, um, you know, when I was asked to look after rowers, I had really no idea, you know, what I was in for or what I was doing. But at the same time, you know, Was just really interested with how the human body moves and it's another opportunity and we certainly had a whole lot more elite rowers and swimmers in Tassie, in Tasmania. Mm. So um, it it became, um, I suppose, just an area to explore and become interested in and they are really similar because they're both very much um, sports that require a lot of hours of training um, a lot of discipline, most definitely. You've got to really love them because it's a lot of time that you put into the sport um, over a week as a junior and, and as a senior, so as a sub-elite and elite um, rower or swimmer. And um, the parallels there are really, really similar when we look at growing bodies in particular with regards mm. to what sort of training load young growing bodies should do when they're trying to grow and they're trying to row or grow and swim and be, you know have enough energy to do both of those things. So, yeah, and well, they probably learn yeah, themselves to early
1: specialization both of those sports a lot of young swimmers just swim and a lot of young rowers um well yeah if they just row they can predispose themselves to injury um yeah really good to have the um background knowledge in in the athlete mindset and also understanding um the sport uh, so did you have mentors when you were a swimmer did you go to see physios and you thought i want to be like that
2: Yeah, I was I was doing, you know, really well academically in year eleven and twelve and people were saying to me you really should go and study medicine and for some reason it just didn't excite me that much and I'm not really sure why um, and I had a oh, shoulder injury shocking. As <laughs> so yes yeah, so I'm not a not, a, not a doc, I'm a goose on this
1: episode
2: essentially I had multi-directional instability of my shoulders as okay. a swimmer, and I saw a physiotherapist who still works here in Hobart her name is Debbie Crawford and um, that was when I went oh gosh you know, this is something I could do this yeah. is something I could see myself doing um as a career so that's sort of how I became exposed to physiotherapy in in the first place
1: so you threw yourself into physio in, in studying and tra- um, training to be a clinician, and then what was your early experience with Australian team representation? You said you were on the um, junior teams and then the senior open water team.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I was um, looking after some as, um, as a relatively new grad um, in Hobart, and just volunteering my time to be able to learn more about, I uh, suppose, the other side of the sport rather than being an athlete, caring for athletes, and really enjoyed it. And the national junior coach um, used to come in out of Tasmania quite a bit at that stage. His name was um, Nugget Lee New. Nutri- that you yeah. guys may have uh-huh. heard of. Yeah, I know, Nugget. Yeah, he became the Australian senior swimming coach and um, he just liked some of the innovative things that I was doing with the swimmers and invited me to go on my first Australian junior swim team, which was pretty fabulous. So it was just an opportunity and um, it really was just because he came in in a session that I was doing with a group of young swimmers from an injury prevention point of view and liked what he saw. So, you know, being able to take up those opportunities when they come along and run with them is something that you need to do when you've got a passion in the sport. That's actually really
1: Really interesting, Kel. So you're already choosing opportunities to do education with athletes on the run, even as a very young physio in your own clinic. Now, I'd like to hear about how did you go about deciding as such a young physio this is the way I think is best to practice and this is how I want to practice tell me about that.
2: Yeah I um, I started in private practice which is quite unusual for physios you usually start in the yeah. hospital and, and get um, some experiences communicating with patients and having very good mentor mentorship if you like and um, I knew I didn't want to work in a hospital environment and I had an opportunity to, to work in a private practice um, as a new graduate which I took up and um, it was a pretty high turnover practice I saw a lot of people an hour and um, I didn't last very long in that practice so I lasted less than less than two years so um, essentially I got burnt out I was trying to be the best version of myself that I could be in an environment that probably didn't allow for that and I am someone that gives a lot so I was probably just as much part of the problem as the actual setup itself but I learned really early that that was just not um, the type of way that I wanted to work and actually gave up physio altogether I was never ever going to be a physio again I hated it and I just decided that that was you know that was not for me yeah Yeah, and um you know I, I actually applied for a job um as a checkout chick um, at police
1: at and police <laughs> physio, it easy. You wouldn't have to
2: take any work home. That sort of gives you an idea of you know yeah. how exhausted I was. Oh, physios
1: and allied yeah, you know, health practitioners can work down, very you
2: don't hard. Have to do anything other than small talk and you know, I like people, so I thought that's a pretty good idea. And um, anyway, my dad who was running a, a plaster. Uh, Menu, uh, plaster distributorship business at the time said, You know what? I don't think that's going to go very good for you. I think you're only going to last a couple of days doing that. I need a PA at the moment. Why don't you come and work for me? And so I did. And essentially, unbeknownst to me, I learned how to run a business actually mm-hmm. being a PA. And so, you know, we got about six months into that, and dad said, You know, you really loved um, studying physio. Are you can give this another go? And I said, Look, I think I could if I saw people over along the time period. I wasn't just patching people up. I could really explore their movement patterns and work on performance with athletes. Yeah. And um that's really what I had a passion for. And so I yeah, ran around a heap of practices in Hobart going, will you let me see people over longer treatment times? I don't mind if you pay me less. I just want to see if I like this profession still and no one would employ me. So that's when I started my own practice um really just to get an idea about if I could set it up under my parameters, would I like it? And um, I was fortunate enough, a couple of months into starting my own practice, that a really experienced sports physio um, rang me and said, I want to come and work with you. And I said, you know, you don't, you don't need to do that. Like, I know nothing. And he's like, no, I've always wanted to work in the same way that you're working. Great. Um, not on the weekends, not till 9 o'clock at night, you know, hour for new patients, half an hour for reassessments. Okay, day. that's so decent. That's enough me. Time, gave time to really some amazing years of mentorship, which I'll be forever grateful for.
0: Yeah, right. So, Cal, yeah. what what year was that that you started the business?
2: Um, so it's graduating in 98. So, I started my business in 2001. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's coming up to 20 years. Yeah, right. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is and what huge. does it look like yeah. now? I know yeah, what it looks so like, but have, it's pretty much... We also. have 14 <laughs>
2: practitioners, so we yeah. have um, 12 physiotherapists and two exercise physiologists and um, a really good rehab facility um, where we're doing lots of exercise-based therapy. Um, So essentially we run hand physiotherapy, sport and musculoskeletal physiotherapy and exercise physiology, which I think is a real growing profession that we're going to need Mm. as a community to prescribe exercise going forward. So we are quite excited about that sort of new part of the business as well.
1: Yeah, excellent. And um, in terms of the setup down in Hobart now, I was blown away when I joined the rowing team, just in terms of the quality of rowers that come out of Tassie. Um, and when you go down there and train on the Huon River, um, head down to Huonville, pick up some apples on the way or on the way back, and it's just absolutely stunning. The water is beautiful. It does get cold, but it, you know, breeds tough and very proficient and good rowers for such a small population down there. What's it like working in Tassie rowing? Yeah,
2: I think. Um, I think in a lot of ways when I was First, asked to look after a rowing crew, which was in 2004. It was a bit of an initiation of fire because it was um, an Olympic (laughs) crew and I'd really only been looking after juniors up until that stage.
0: And potential medalists um, as well, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. And um, so at the time, being able to drive down to the Huon Valley and realise how beautiful it is going and spending time with people that are rowing in beautiful places in the world in the fresh air, um, and um, people that are enjoying their environment at the same time as doing sport, that was a massive attraction to become more involved in in rowing. The other thing that I will say is growing up in swimming, you know all the politics about the sport, and to be able to come into a sport just absolutely fresh and establish relationships with people as a professional, athletes, coaches, and and other um, people in the multidisciplinary team was really refreshing, and, um, you know, in I had twin boys in 2006, so in 2008, um, rowing was saying, come on, you need to travel with us. And I did one two-week um, swimming trip to New Zealand and one three-week rowing trip to Lindsay, in Austria. And went, I'm going to make a decision after that who I'm going to travel with. And rowing one hands down. It was just <laughs> such a lovely environment to be in. And, um, yeah, rowing goes to some pretty cool places in the world too, hey?
0: Yeah, it does. But what is it, – it certainly does, Kelly. What is really interesting, that point you said about almost, almost – the advantages you get of moving out of your sport as a practitioner, as a coach, or whatever—I I think that's really common, and I've seen that recently in a number of people, and you know, also in my role moving out of not—I don't have rowing at, at the institute as a sport—and it's um, in some ways it's really powerful not working within your sport, um, and it, I actually think it's a very smart idea for every. You know practitioner coach or whatever if they're wanting to progress to 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 try and spend a bit of time outside
1: yeah and i think i when you were talking about driving down to the hewan valley and i imagined you jumping in the coach boat um and going out on the river and that's one of the things i always remember about you Kel, is that you often put yourself in the position next to the coach and had your chat with the coach in the coach boat while watching the sport and maybe in the early days it was okay how do i get to know rowing and then it was how do i get to know each athlete's movement pattern um I just think it was a, that's a great way to go about it.
2: Yeah, and look, I had to do that because I had to learn um, what the sport looked like and what the physical requirements of the sport were. Um, and that was the easiest way to do it, to be in the coach boat and just pepper the coach with questions <laughs> and drive them nuts. And you know, I, I got to learn from some just amazing people. Like the first coach that I learned from was you know, Sam McCombs. Sam, and, yeah. yeah. I had to impress him before I was allowed out of the coach boat. He was a pretty hard taskmaster, (laughs) but, um, yeah, ended up going out with him. And then Rhett Ayliff was here for a certain period of time and John Dreesen, of course, that I've spent a lot of time with um, over many, many years in that coach boat and um, also Brett Crowe. So I've been really fortunate to have some amazing coaches to learn from. But um, what we figured out with all of those coaches over time is that coaches are really good at looking at the boat and the oars and sort of look at that and then come into the person, whereas physios are more sort of focused on the body and um, they really taught me how to not just look at the body but how to look at how the body moves with the boat and um, as you both know because I've yeah. worked so closely with both of you I'm absolutely fascinated just with human performance and being able to make that boat go faster you know and being able to get performance gains as a physio rather than just prevent injury and that's probably what I was most passionate about the whole time that I was involved in elite rowing.
1: Yeah oh for sure Kelly. I remember lots of um Lots of education that we had that might've been around, um, you know, core strength or um, a part of your S&C program that was actually about this position. We know if your back is in this position, the force is going uh, into the foot plate on this angle, which actually should make the boat go faster. And, you know, that's actually, as a clinician or as an athlete, if you hear that from your clinician, you think, oh, I'm listening now. Like if this is actually going to prevent injury and make me row faster. Uh, if you talk about performance, you speak, you speak the athlete's language and I thought it was a really powerful thing. Yeah,
2: and the great thing about rowing is that perform, the way that you want rowers to row to perform well is actually the way that you want them to row well to not be injured. So yeah. they go hand in hand. Yeah,
0: yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, I think, in the second topic as well. So, Cal, <laughs> we had a little bit of an argument before the start of the um, – it was an awkward domestic <laughs> here um, because well, I thought I that your first team was with me – <laughs> but I've since learned that your first team, you were actually with the dock here in uh, in Linz in Austria in 2008. Is that right? The um, So was that the um, non-Olympic yeah. World Championships?
1: My memory of it, Cal, was that it was the junior cha- World Championships with the non-Olympic teams that went along. So we raced uh, in Linz, which is a beautiful course in Austria that uh, finishes and you have to put the brakes on so you don't float out onto the Danube. And... Um, uh, Jamie Fernandez was on that team and he was coaching the junior men's double I think at the time and he did a speech one of the evenings right when the team gathered together about what he remembers about the experience of rowing for Australia and this is on a mainly a junior team with 17, 16, 17 year olds who'd never been away with the team before and... Um, it was actually one of the most powerful speeches on the on the rowing team that I ever remember was this trip. And so I think if that was your first team and you had people speak so passionately about what it meant to represent the country, oh, um, mm. yeah, I was pretty hooked actually.
2: Yeah, my the hair still stand up on the back of my arms thinking about that speech. It was pretty amazing, right? And um, he you know, just sort of personified the privilege of what it is, you know, rowing or competing for your country and the fact that not many people get to do it. And, um, you know, the other thing that was really interesting about that year is one of the um, one of the athletes that um, Hammer was coaching was Sasha Belenogoff. And, you know, I've had this mm, really yes. close relationship with the men's scum program, you know, all the way that's through right. my whole career. And so to begin with Sasha <laughs> in a junior team and to end the Rio Games yes. with him I think it was pretty special actually. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And um, so, that was obviously a good experience, but it obviously paled into insignificance compared <laughs> to 2009 at the under-23s in Richichi when uh, you were with yours truly. Is that Would that be fair enough?
2: Oh, okay. it's, hard, it's hard to argue, isn't
0: it? <laughs> so, Kel, what I remember yeah, sure of that was that. you and I doing uh, a couple of times we went for a walk on the course just for a bit of exercise. Yeah. And because Layla, my little, little darling yeah. at that stage, she was almost ready to come out. I was... Yeah. I think you know Sarah was 36 weeks along or something like that and you were giving me the rundown on what it was going to be like and um how I, and I just I have this vivid memory of that of that experience rolling down the course and and chewing chewing the fat on on that but then yeah. the next year I guess um you know, um, I was coaching this, you know, back in the senior team and you were starting to work with the senior team again yep. full time as, um, or not, sorry, full time, but as one of the regular physios within that um, rotation, that key rotation that, um, that Ivan had set up of the, the core physio medical group.
2: Yeah, so 2009 was at under 23 trip, and it was a pretty amazing trip because we had some really amazing calibre of coaches on that trip again, which was you know great, you know great trip to learn from, and then. Um, Uh, In 2010, that was my first senior trip and I did the World Cup tour, that trip where we used to do World Cups, come back to Australia and then do World Championships. Mm. And um, that was a pretty amazing um, experience as well. And, yeah, the the learnings, I suppose, about rowing when you're away were pretty huge. But the other thing that you've touched on there, Bill, is so true, and that is, you know, we went away for very long periods of time and being able to support each other from a family point of view really huge and um, I think you know the whole time that Larry and I were on the Australian um, rowing team as medical practitioners um, there weren't many females you know coaching or or staff wise on those, those teams And you know what I've come to learn I suppose over time is that whether you're male or female, you have, have to have amazing support on the ground at home mm. to take those opportunities up and to yeah. be able to run with them as career opportunities. And um, certainly I've had that from my husband, Jason, and he's, you know, stepped up to the plate and gone above and beyond on so many occasions for me to have so many phenomenal experiences and um, and certainly being able to share like how you've coped at home with other people yeah. you know, I think helps people keep coming back to the team year and year and year on end. So um it's you form very, very close relationships with people when you're away for that long and living together um, you know, twenty four hours a day.
0: Yeah, you certainly do, don't
1: you? I'm so glad you've touched on this because I think as a mum and your boys were very young when you just when you started with the team, I think you said they were two, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: to, i lived to lived my husband for three weeks with two two year olds. He needs uh, a gold medal for that, hey. Yeah,
3: <laughs>
1: absolutely.
3: That's
1: yeah. And how you juggled that with um, oh, the first Olympic cycle, you were spending most of the time managing your practice and coordinating part of your job with the Australian rowing team. And the second Olympic cycle, you were the lead physiotherapist for, for the Australian rowing team. And how you juggled a business and the job with rowing and family with two boys going through primary school and then secondary school I think that that's definitely worth a conversation how did you do that yeah
2: well it's, it's, you know we we had great family support when the kids were really young um in that um first cycle that London cycle and I wasn't traveling as much not being the lead physio I was doing a lot, lot at home and doing a smaller stint I- um, but we had, you know, both my parents and Jason's parents able to help us out a bit as well, which was which was great. Um, I, my husband also had a really flexible job and worked with my dad so I was able to come and go as he needed to. But I can remember um, Larry and I sitting on a train going into Milan um, just before we left to go to the London Olympics and um, we'd only met each other on that trip and we got along like a house on fire and she said, okay, I've been offered the head lead doctor role for the Rio Olympics. I'm only doing it if you're doing the lead physio role. They're <laughs> going to offer it to you. And I was like, oh, of course I want to do that. And I'm in the middle of just about to go to the Olympics. And and in the coming days, I sat down and pretty much agreed to it. And then when I caught up with Jason at the London Olympics, I told him, he was like, all right, so how do you think you're going to do that? I was like, well, I haven't thought about that yet. <laughs> it's a great opportunity. But we need to figure it out. And he said exactly what you did, Max, and so you're going to run a business. And you've got two you know, kids that are now six years old and um, you also um, have a husband and you're going to do all this travel with rowing and mm-hmm. you can coordinate um, 100 roles around the country as well. Uh, how are we going to do that? I said, look, we will just wait till we get to Thailand on the way home for our holiday and we'll sit down and figure it out. <laughs> anyway, by that stage, he had already figured it out. He said, listen, we can't both be working full time. This is an amazing opportunity for you. Um, I have no problems with working, you know, a whole lot less hours a week and being the primary carer for our kids um, wow. for you to really get your teeth into this and do this for the next four years. And we made an agreement then that I couldn't do it forever. It yeah. wasn't sustainable. Um, Mm. that I'd have a really good crack at at doing it with Larry because we worked so well together Mm. for those four years. And we we knew that after Rio that would be it, that um, we wouldn't be able to do that anymore. And lots of people had talked to us about the fact that When your kids get to, like, primary school, early high school, they need you around a whole lot more and particularly Mm -hmm. need mums at home to come and sit their bums down, you know, next to you, not that they think that they need you at that stage. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of this Olympiad that we're in at the moment um, that's obviously been extended as well, the plan was always Mm -hmm. for me to be around more and for Jason to work more. And we just acknowledged that you both couldn't be going hard at it together the whole time if you wanted to spend a lot of time bringing your kids up so it's a a massive team effort and um, yeah certainly I'm working less than I ever have now and um, Jason's working more and um, yeah I'm bothering the kids more than they probably like and um, you know the shoes on the other foot but um, yeah it's a massive team effort definitely
0: You know what's really interesting just listening to that it just reminds me again of We're constantly asking athletes to do a a better job, pay more attention to their long-term planning. Like, you know, you're a junior cyclist. um, You want to be in the 2024, 2028 teams, and then maybe you want to go and ride in a tour team. What's your map? How do you map it out? And, like, you've just articulated how people sit down and they work this out, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't just happen by accident, does it? You can't manage all of that stuff, which seems – Incredible! You can manage it if you actually plan it and you talk about it and you and you map it out. It's there's such a performance overlay that you've put to, towards figuring that out.
1: Yeah. So, in, but she said yes initially. Um, you know, she let the heart speak first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then actually. The mind needs to kick in. The brain needs to kick in. But it goes into planning. It goes
0: into planning mode. It goes into solution finding and it's such a performance mindset. And a very
1: important conversation to have in terms of how do we get more women involved in those roles and how can we um, help support them to be able to contribute because, I mean, it it, it is, like you said, Kelly, it is unsustainable and that's that's one of our challenges going forward, I think, is how do we keep... um, the, the female clinician able to contribute through all stages. I mean, you, you do need to have such good support at home and you can't do everything. You can, you have to pick your timing, I guess, and that's probably what, um, at the moment, that's where we're at. But thank you. Yeah. done a wonderful yeah. job.
2: And what I always say to people is, you know, um, essentially the conversations that we probably need to be have, um, having to be able to enable women to take up leadership um, positions generally in the workforce is... Um, with the husbands that have supported them to do that mm. because, you know, I'm down with my husband and I say, gosh, you know, your mum was a stay-at-home mum. Like, what made you make that decision to go, this is really important yeah. to you I want to make this happen? Like, that's not what he saw when he was growing up. So, you know, how how do you make those decisions? And um, I think, you know, a, a lot of the answers come down to the fact that you it's the support that you have in your individual relationships, but I think they're the conversations we need to be ha- having. Like, how do we enable women to lead? And also acknowledge that sometimes they want to be at home with their kids and that's actually okay too. Like once yeah. my kids get through year 12, I might want to put my hand up for some high-performance sport again, but now I want to be here and that's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah then I, I picked up on that, Cal. I was sort of like, yeah, it's, you, you've modulated yourself out for a bit and, you know, the timing might be right and and you yeah. step back in and that that's, you know, it's not linear. It's not always linear. No, it's not. Not it, always linear.
1: Yeah, you can do everything but not at the <laughs> same time. And um, when Jason wants to jump on a boat that does Sydney to Hobart, you know that's yeah. when you you stay I mean, home with the kids. <laughs> to do that right
0: now. that's Exactly right. <laughs> All right well, that, that's been great, Cal, covering the um, covering the background. Some really interesting stuff there, and some stuff I think we'll pick up again in the third uh, third topic around the interdisciplinary teams. But we might um, shoot along to a really key area of expertise, and one I know that our listeners are going to be fascinating in, in, and that is the lower back pain in in rowing and in sport.
1: So um, our second topic, we definitely wanted to speak to Kelly about uh, low back pain in rowing and um, her observations around the injury prevention and injury incidence data that we spoke about with Larry a couple of episodes ago. Now, Kelly was always a keen observer while she was working with rowing um, and she contributed to quite a bit, quite a few research papers um, during the rowing time as well. But now that she's got some more available writing time, they're collating a lot of data, I think World Rowing's picked up on this and they've realised that it's an area that we need more direction from a global perspective about how we look after young rowers coming in and how we can keep rowers in the sport for longer. And um, I'm sure Kelly can speak to it, but there's a great... Um, uh, group that are working with World Rowing, which is the world uh, the uh, low back pain care pathway. And Kelly is, is a, clinic, a clinical um, expert in, in the area. So there's also a number of papers that are coming out this year on um, low back pain in sport generally. And um, I'd like to know from Kelly, like what's she doing now in terms of research? What are the papers that are being worked out at the moment? And where's this data come from? And um, then we'll go on and talk a little bit about... Um, the actual injuries and how how you saw this coming through with rowing at the time. So, Kel, what are you doing now?
2: Yeah, well, um, thank you for that bit of a summary, Mac. Um, what's really, really concerning for the sport of rowing is how prevalent low back pain is. And um, we know, we're really certain about what that prevalence is in the adult population. And we talk about it in terms of, you know, rowing about 30% of rowers in a 12-month period will get low back pain. And we say, you know what, that's the same as the adult population, so that's not that bad. But when we think about it, adult rowers haven't lived through their adulthood yet. Mm. So it is that. We've got a whole lot more people that have got low back pain at that age. Um, And then when we go down to the next level and we look at developing rowers, um, we don't know exactly what the numbers are yet in terms of 12-month prevalence. But when we ask um, young rowers at a regatta whether they've got low back pain on the day, um, young boys – 70 to 80% of them say they've got low back pain on that day, and females, um, somewhere in the realms of 60 to 70%, so they've got low back pain on that day. Nice. So,
0: Wow, that is staggering, concern. isn't
2: it? Yeah, massive concern. And um, the epidemiology paper that Larry and I were involved with, exploring the prevalence of um, injury and illness in, in rowing in um, the Australian rowing team across eight years, tells us that in that elite population, it's a real problem for boys, but not as much for, for girls or women. And we can talk a little bit about that in a moment. But um, I had the opportunity to be asked by Fiona Wilson, who is a physiotherapist um, in Ireland Mm. and has published a lot in rowing, um, had the opportunity to be invited by her to be part of a, a research group to be able to put together a consensus paper or a guideline on how we need to treat but also prevent low back pain in the sport of rowing. And that was just off the back of the Rio Olympiad. So two and a half years ago, we met in London. There was a group of us. um, And really, it's been an amazing collaboration across the world. So um, Larry Therese is part of that. Um, So is Jane Thornton Mm. in England. And um, Fiona and myself are sort of the main the main research group, um, but certainly there's been a whole lot more people that we've pulled in um, for the research that we've been doing. And so, what's come out of that is we've we've written five research articles and have just um, submitted um, an article for publication, which is a guideline for low back pain: um, how to manage low back pain in rowing and how to prevent low back pain in rowing. And it's a, a mountain
1: of work, Kel.
2: At, it's huge, yeah. So when we looked at the prevalence of low back pain in rowing, um, there are there's lots of research with regards to that in the elite and sub-elite population. But when we looked at the management of low back pain in rowing, there was only one paper that's ever been written, and that was on adolescent schoolgirl rowers in, in Western Australia. Yeah. There was nothing in the elite and sub-elite population. So we had to go, okay, Let's extend that literature search, um, systematic review to low back pain in sport. And when we decided to do that, we needed to extend the epidemiology paper of how often this happens to sport. So there are two humongous papers that that are are being peer-reviewed at the moment. But then we went, okay, if we don't know what the best management for low back pain in rowing is, we need to ask the clinicians and the experts. And that became my main um, part of the working group. So I ran what's called a Delphi study, where we actually sent out um, a a questionnaire that took um, an hour to fill out. So it was quite comprehensive to every international. Rowing country in the world, and asked them to forward it to their medical staff, and um, we got 31 responses with a pretty good spread right around the world, which is pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, and then we collated all of that information, which was a humongous (laughs) amount of data, um, into statements. And we selected 20 what we would call experts that have been involved um, in rowing um, on national teams or on the FISA Medical Con- um, Commission for, for a number of years. And we invited them to rate the statements with regards to how much they agreed with them or not. And uh, we mm-hmm. had 13 people reply to that. And um, then, so we ran the first round of that, we ran a second round of that once so I saw the results that everyone else had had, um, had um, put, put in, if you like, and we got 12 responses to that. So it's really strong clinical research because we don't have evidence yes. um, with regards. How to treat low back pain rowing and in rowing, and, and that's really important because it's going to drive the research that we need to do. So we've gone to the clinicians and gone, "What do you do? And how is it different from treating low back pain in the general population?" And and you both will realise that it's you know the time is a really important thing when you're treating athletes. It's yeah. minimising the time um, out of the boat, minimising yeah. the time out of sport. And so there's a certain level of urgency um, treating low back pain in athletes, but also that um, spines need to tolerate much greater. To loads, and particularly with rowing, when you're in a seated position and putting huge loads through your spine, um, you know it's very different, um, very different problem to rehab compared to the general population as well. Mm. Um, so that, that's been peer-reviewed at the moment as well, that paper. And then we've also got a paper that's come out um, that was mainly driven by Fiona Wilson with regards to the athletes' voice, so interviewing athletes about their experience with low back pain. Yeah. That's quite interesting because there, there are a lot of athletes that probably conceal their low back pain, particularly around selection times and things mm-hmm. like that. So that will be a really interesting paper in itself. And then there's a final study which is um, looking at biomechanics and risk factors for low back pain in rowing. And those five studies then get combined together to be able to take all all of the best evidence um, and presented in one um, massive low back pain guideline and um, that's essentially we've just we're just sort of finishing off um I suppose reviewing those articles and, and trying to get them get them all published at, at the moment but it's been a massive body of work. And this certainly is a not mountain. something I could have been doing while I was travelling with rowing, but um it's been right. a really nice thing to have been involved with and um, connect with you
0: know, experts worldwide, um, and get a really good idea about where we need to go next with the research. Yeah, phenomenal. Amazing. So, Cal, um, I think that the lower back thing is is obviously fascinating for rowing, but I guess it it's it's a very real thing just for general population. You know, you've seen so many of them. Like, what what do you know about them? What What do you think are, are critical things that that people should know about lower back management?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting? Um, the biggest predisposing factors for low back pain in the general population are low levels of exercise, obesity, smoking, comorbidity, and having a job where you do heavy lifting. or <laughs> what coming from a low socioeconomic background. None of those are risk factors for rowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. In rowing. So we've got the biggest risk factors in the world for low back pain in the general population, really big lifestyle change changes and access to, to good medical care um, are the really big changes that we need to make for low back pain in the general population. But for rowing, all of those things are already taken care of. Yeah. So, mm. so what does that mean? So can, clearly we've got an inverse proportion here of mm. enough exercise is not good for your low back and your spine. But maybe too much exercise and too much load is not good either. Mm. So probably a sweet spot in the middle. Mm. And um, that's what we need to find. And part of that's going to be not just your total amount of training load, but I think it's really important to understand that there's training load and also a tissue load.
3: Mm. So if yep. you
2: get the hips moving well on one side of the spine and the thorax moving well on the other side of the low back and you can unload the low back, so you're unloading the tissues, you can train at very high training loads and have good, very good tissue tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the research needs to go. And I think it's mm. really different with how we go about doing that in males and females. And um, that's not born out in the research, that's clinical opinion.
0: Yeah, so yeah. Th- look, It's all
1: going to be very, very well um, collated clinical opinion at the moment. I mean, we know in sports medicine research, some of these things are very difficult to run randomised control trials. So at the moment, we can't stop a group of athletes and, and... you you're going to manage your back pain like this and you're going to manage your back pain like this. It's very, very difficult to run a study like that. And at the moment where we're at is if we want to keep sport moving, this is actually a really excellent way to collect as much um, expert clinical knowledge as possible. So can you tell us just a little bit, Kelly, um, and I know you probably have mentioned this on a a number of other podcasts, but for our listeners, how do you... You were talking a little bit about biomechanics before. Can you go back to that one and just talk about what you've observed and maybe even if there were some uh, anecdotes and crews of influence that you you worked out what you thought caused low back pain in rollers?
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, what, what we know from the research for starters is that if you have good hip mobility, you can get your pelvis into a really vertical position at the catch. And that keeps your back in a pretty flat position, your low back in a flat position. And it doesn't matter how curved your upper back is. It's meant to be curved. That's Mm -hmm. how it's built. And a lot of people think good posture is sort of sitting up from the upper back. But actually, that places more force through the the low back Mm -hmm. itself. So the biomechanics literature tells us um, that, you know, we agree with that, which is great. But, you know, how do we get people to be able to do that? And not just do that for a few strokes, but do that repetitively. And I think the reason why we have females with less low back pain um, in the elite population, so when we looked at our top five injury and illnesses in females across that eight-year data collection study, low back pain didn't feature. It was number six, which is pretty huge, okay? Mm -hmm. But in males, it was number one. Mm -hmm. So with females, I think once once we get to the elite level, females are both flexible and strong. But I think females, um, when they are at a junior level or even below that at a a school or club level, they're flexible. They're naturally quite flexible and they're more flexible than males. But it takes a long time to build up their strength and particularly their trunk strength. And they don't have that benefit of testosterone to lay down muscle as well as what boys do. Um, from a male perspective, I'm quite sure that they're more predisposed because they're less flexible. And getting 130 degrees of hip flexion out of males and being able to use it repetitively for every stroke um, is very difficult. You row when you start to grow as a male, like you start rowing when you start to grow as a male mm. rower, and so you're losing relative flexibility at the rate of knots, and that might be when you get your first episode of low back pain. And your first episode is your biggest predisposing body factor to your second episode. And I
1: remember oh, hearing you say that yep. when the long bones grow, then you, uh-huh. your, your muscles can't keep up, so they tighten, so the hamstrings tighten as the, as the femur grows.
2: Yep totally, so hamstrings tighten, um, your hip flexors tighten, your glutes tighten, so your free your, your, your easy movement around your hip goes backwards at the rate of knots mm. and um, I suspect that's why males are much more predisposed um, to, to low back injury um, and it's a whole lot easier to get them stronger and um, you, I've spoken on different podcasts about how I sort of stumbled across why I think that your anterior mm. abdominal wall, or your abdominals are so important in the rowing stroke and What happened was we had a group of men's scholars and they were about to go overseas and I'm just trying to remember what year it was. I think it was 2006 or 2007 before I started travelling with the team, and um, they were about to go overseas and get on the plane to go to World Championships. And myself and Red Ailif were standing there, and they were doing a photo shoot in um, in my clinic in the gym space. And it was really just a media, um, local paper, paper media opportunity. And I said, you know, what can you, we get them to do in here that's you know interesting from a photo shoot point of view? So we'll do some crunches on on the football, and we started doing that. And after about twenty crunches, they were all shaking. All over the place and not able to do it. And Rhett and I were looking at each other, going, "Oh my god, this is not good." We expect them to be stronger than this. You know, the forces that come up through those legs, that the trunk has to sustain, you know, sustain to be able to put pressure on that wall it requires a huge amount of anterior abdominal wall strength from mid drive to late drive to really mm. transfer that force through. And um, at the time, we didn't want to actually freak out about it. You can't build trunk endurance, you know. Three weeks before you're going to start racing. And um, so when Rhett arrived back, we went, look, you know, maybe we should look at building trunk strength but also endurance. Like, could we get rollers to do something like five lots of 60 short range crunches on a pit ball to match the sort of um, number of strokes that they would need to do in a race, in a headwind, um, in a (laughs) single? And um, we were a little bit worried about it because, as you know, if you're loading the anterior abdominal wall, you're loading, loading the rib cage, and yeah. rib injuries are a certain, you know, significant factor for for rowing. And um, so, what ended up happening is that. We had a physiotherapist working for me at the time, and the physiotherapist was Sam Belts, his lightweight right Handy And he rolling. said, well, I'll have a, yeah, I'll have, a, I'll have a crack at it. You know, I'll do it. I think it's I think it's exactly what we need to do, but I'll be able to tell you if I'm starting to get sore or, you know, had good body awareness. And, and so I stepped him through it as an N equals 1 to begin with, to go, look, I'm really worried that I might, you know, give you great performance gains, reduce your low back pain but give you a rib stress injury and, and I don't want to be responsible for that and um, he really found that he was able to maintain posture during training sessions but also towards the end of a race much much better than he could ever do you know before and really advocated it. So we rolled that out um, to the rest of the Tasmanian squad to begin with and then when the next Australian squad was selected and sent to Tassie which were the lightweight men's crews and the heavyweight going crews, um, we rolled it out with, with those groups, and um, we couldn't stop people doing it because I really felt as i worked up into those higher reps and had much better trunk endurance, that the amount of force that they could keep carrying from mid to late drive with every stroke throughout um, a whole race was um, was you know much more significant than what they'd experienced before. And again, that was a massive performance gain, and that was probably the driver for athletes doing it. But for me, it was to prevent low back pain, and. Um, I think we saw a really big – well, we did. We know we saw a really big decrease in the day's cost to low back pain Mm. as um, my time in rowing continued on, and we rolled that out to the whole Australian rowing team. And I think that was one of the reasons. I think we also really pushed – our men to stretch and particularly in the Rio cycle we did that and i think that made a really big difference as well and i think the other thing that we rolled out in the london cycle was saying to athletes you need to trust us as soon as you get like back pain you need to tell us in the first 24 hours mm. we need to see you we need intervene really early and we need to get early aggressive unloading early control of your pain and we can get you back quicker so we were really able to reduce the day's cost for a low back injury down by doing those three things and um, you know we don't have a lot of data around that because you can't capture it like you said Matt but um, I have a high clinical suspicion that all three had a really really big difference in reducing the day's cost to low back pain um, even if we couldn't reduce the incidence.
0: So one, one thing that I think is really interesting there is we had Rowie Webster who's the um, captain of the Stingers on um, a couple of weeks ago and she talked really directly about needing to trust, she, I think she basically said young athletes need to trust their medical team or their support team. They need to mm-hmm. come forward straight away and, and and I think that the interesting part there is it's easy to trust in a medical team when they're present. Regularly, and they're and they've got skin in the game and bought into it. And clearly, from the way you've described how you went about creating these um, ideas, almost with the athletes, yeah. you know that naturally builds trust and, I guess, you know that buzzword buy-in.
1: Well, um, I, I, I actually remember being in Ga- in Hotel Biandrono, which was actually a be- uh, Hotel Continental in Biandrono, which was before the etc was built in. Northern Italy and that's the first time I heard about Kelly's abs yep, which the, <laughs> the Tassie guys have been doing and I remember they were doing 6 by 50 crunches and they said alright so the whole team's going to start doing these endurance abs. Now you can hide a lot in a rowing boat you because it's the same biomechanical action over and over again you load the same tissues if you don't engage that part of your core during your, your 20k rowing training session well it's going to pretty much fatigue when it's on a Swiss ball. So I remember the first time I tried Kelly's abs. (laughs) We were lucky because we got to start with, I think it was two by 20. (laughs) And I thought, okay, I can do do two by 20, but when this builds up, I'm in trouble.
0: (laughs) But what I think is fascinating, and the the podcast you mentioned before is well worth listening to, Leo Training Podcast. It was an excellent um, episode, I thought, and you covered a lot of ground in in technical technical detail, which is really cool. But... um, you're sort of listening to that thinking why did it take so long for us to realize that a race that that went over six to eight minutes was going to require i remember it being a concept
1: shift like i remember hearing it thinking that's genius why don't we always do our core training like that and kelly i think the australian rowing team now does a lot more endurance core and and work like that are you across that
2: yeah, particularly the girls. Um, Dave Young has really made sure that they've got a really big core focus in their program, and um, I and I think it's just it's essential for all elite and sub elite well, rowers. It's essential for all you know young kids. Their mm. races take longer, right? Mm. You know, yeah. they need to do more. <laughs> you could argue, um, but yeah, the girls in particular have got a really big focus of that in their program, and it's really pleasing to see that because I think that's the area that um, you know girls need to be great at to prevent low back pain. And, and we had a really interesting. Um, scenario in those two Olympiads, the London and Rio Olympiad, whereas we hardly had any low back pain in the London Olympiad with our female rowers at all at an elite level and it wasn't until we got to the Rio Olympiad where a really big influx of under 23 rowers came in to the program and didn't have the training history that um, the rest of the girls did and I think we had a bit of an unfair representation in that London Olympiad of really experienced
3: yeah. strong flexible ah. women
2: yeah. and we had a much younger team at the beginning of the Rio Olympiad and um, the, the incidence of low back pain just went through the roof and I can remember seeing them when they first came in and thinking oh gosh you you think you've got a lot of training to catch up, but actually I've got a lot to gain in terms of trunk yeah. control and, um, you know, trunk endurance with this group as well. And being overseas, knowing you could only, you know, improve them so much before yeah. um, their next major competition was sometimes a real challenge to figure out how much you wanted to prioritise those things and how much just needed to be done off the back of a mm. major championship as next well. Next year,
0: basically. Exactly what you, you and Rhett decided back in 2006 when you saw it the yeah. first time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We spoke a little bit within the podcast about the difference in the Olympic cycles between the incidence of low back pain and uh, you, you can't um, deduce any sort of causation from the study in terms of from the design, but, you know, we're talking about the ins- we, one cycle we used an ergo on stationary, the other cycle we used an ergo on sliders and it, would that relate? But we actually didn't discuss that, the fact that you had a group that had a big training background and, and that you can't catch that up very quickly um, and that does prevent some sort of injury and, and it might predispose younger athletes, might be resilient to other things, but certainly the core strength that's developed over that much training will hold you in good state.
0: It's interesting. It's also another reason why enabling uh, particularly female athletes but all rowing athletes to plan for long rowing careers is important because it does take time to build this resilience. It doesn't happen in four to six years. Sometimes it takes eight, maybe 10 years to actually get enough um, you know, under your belt to be able to but sustain if the level you levels started that you as a team. junior
1: athlete with a, a, a program that was like this. Imagine if we could, yeah. No, and that's that that's something early. I did
0: want to ask Kelly. Like, you know, if you could wave the growing bodies magic wand, and we'll talk about <laughs> growing bodies in a second. Well, down well. at down at all the school levels, would that be sort of your advice? Is look, you know, yes, do your ergo testing. Yes, get on in the water because you got to weld the movements. But if you can just make enough time to do this endurance trunk building. Strength that would be a really good start. Is that sort of?
2: A- yeah, it's a great question. Um, I you know often get asked where you can have the most impact because kids don't have a lot of time, and doing endurance apps takes a lot of time. Yeah. And um, I would say, like first and foremost, before before doing that, your priorities are making sure people are flexible enough, and that can be as simple as just doing five minutes less on the water, coming off and all stretching your hip flexes your hamstrings, and your, and your glutes as a squad, long cold stretching, <laughs> and growing bodies to just have the flexibility to get into the right positions. Um, And warming up for five or ten minutes before you get on the water without cooling down, not warming up and then getting your boat ready. I think they're probably two really big impacts, you know, you can make. I think we have a lot of trouble with the
1: school crews doing that, getting off the water, quick get your bags, go to school, rather than get off the water and lie on the floor with your phone with your hamstring on stretch. Yeah, and I think we that. would
2: end up with a whole lot more athletes at the end of the school program not having dropped out because of low back pain if we did that. Yeah. So, five minutes of extra performance in training compared to your five minutes of stretching and having um, a much better. Um, athlete selection group go through has got to improve performance as mm-hmm. well for school kids. Um, but from a trunk endurance point of view, it's really interesting because I think, you know, what what we've learned is you need to do it three times a week to make gain. I think senior athletes with some pretty good starting um, position can probably do it twice a week and okay. once a week for, for maintenance. Um, and so you've got to set aside you know, three times a week to be able to do that. But the other tricky thing is if you can't get into the right position in the boat, so if you're trying to engage your abs for trunk stability mid to late drive but your hamstrings are so tight that they're rolling your pelvis back anyway, mm. it doesn't matter how strong your core is. So they go hand in hand. And another question that people have often asked me is, okay, but why if you row really well on the water all the time, you would just gain trunk endurance? And it's like, yeah, absolutely right. And this is where I think rowing's really different to other sports, say sport of swimming. It's of swimming. Mean, you know, you can be technically quite proficient with freestyle and getting good body rotation pretty easily and pretty early, um, because it doesn't require flexibility requirements, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have equipment requirements. You guys know more than anyone. To be able to row perfectly on the water <laughs> is a craft that takes, oh, what, 15, 20 years yeah, it's to a develop. Very long to look absolutely yeah. superb. So, you know. Trying to, you know, trying to get your body into the right position and deliver the right forces and control two oars in changing water position conditions and changing wind conditions. So if you could row really, really perfectly well with great flexibility, yeah, you'd gain your endurance without doing these exercises. Yeah. But I haven't seen many young people that
1: can do but that. let's eliminate the, ver- the yeah. variables and put you on a Swiss and you, ball you, and then see it.
0: You've got to get your your coach to set your boat up properly first as well. sake <laughs> <Yes>, the pitch, <laughs> is always always out. Out. pitch is always out. The pitch is <laughs> always out. Can we just check the pitch? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh. Yeah.
2: So I think you know, um, realistically, yeah, having young kids do that sort of abdominal endurance is really important because then they've got it to use mm-hmm. as they're becoming more proficient in their stroke. Yeah.
0: And Cal, you might not be able to answer this, but in your experience, the the um, endurance ad circuit is it is it a so, is it the sort of thing that can be done in? Conjunction with another training session, or you can like, do it does in it interfere? I that's what you're no, I don't need to do it. Um, <laughs> I'll probably do. Um, about I'll it. Almost certainly do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you know? I think that that's one of the things that people often will ask. You know, we, you know, if you're trying to do strength stuff, you can't do that really effectively off the back or before an endurance training session because they interfere with one another so significantly. Yeah. Could this be something that can be done in tandem with with a endurance session or a strength session? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I think when you're starting off with the low numbers, it can, because you're not, fit, you know, not fatiguing too much. Um, but when you actually are starting to do really good, proficient gym sessions where you're really concentrating on loading up and getting strength gains. You just don't have the neuromuscular. I um, suppose you, you fatigue so much mm. through a really hard strength session that neuromuscular fatigue. to then go and do good quality endurance trunk exercises afterwards is really hard. So um, in the in the lower reps, I think it works okay. You mm. can take it on to the end of an S and C session, but otherwise, doing it as a separate session seems to work a whole lot better.
0: So I think that's a really important point because, and that that I guess was what I was thinking because I was imagining, you know, if you if you've deadlifted. You know, if you've done strength deadlifting, there's no way you could do that afterwards. Like, you can barely eat dinner that night. I'm
2: sure you worked it out, Bill. The other thing to be clear about is you need strength as well as endurance. With your apps, most definitely. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's not a replacement for strength work and that's where I think a fair bit of criticism came from doing that sort of work um, early on, um, whereas there were, there were some people that were saying, you know, but you need to be really strong as well through the – it's like, yeah, absolutely. You, you need both. No. You absolutely need both. I
0: think both. that that – yeah, I think that's a great point, that, but it's actually quite obvious because it's like saying you need strength and endurance in your legs. Like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you, you can't – you can't really do without either effectively but I guess what we were saying was we weren't doing any endurance really um in the trunk development so Cal um before we move on to the interdisciplinary team stuff just on the growing bodies um project that you and Larry have sort of brought together I think it's you know really important for you just to tell us a little bit about that because it's, it's such an exciting little project I know it's something that you bubbled away with and Uh, You had old mate Drew in there who sent – Drew gets in every podcast for us. It's ridiculous. (laughs) We're going to have to start paying him royalties. Um, I don't think we can afford it. Um, I'll get him on. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So after Rio, um, Larry and I – Essentially, we like each other a lot. You know, we're great mates, and really? we wanted
3: to continue <laughs> seeing each other.
2: And um, there was a real need identified um, amongst the physio and medical practitioners to deliver some education with regards to um, rowing medicine and physiotherapy to prevent rowing injuries, because you know the school rowing programs are actually really you know quite. Um, significant in Australia. Mm. And so we had, there was a bit of a need, if you like, once we had finished with that elite end of the sport, um, for us to go back and develop some practitioner training. And what we were really worried about is when we went back to our own practices, we were seeing lots of young kids with low back pain, really significant low back pain, um, significant episodes lasting a long period of time from rowing. And what's really interesting, right, is that when you start with a sport, you start with limited knowledge and you're working with the juniors and you're working with the school and club-level athletes. Um, with the lowest amount of knowledge that you may ever have for that sport. And then you get right up to this elite level and you've got all this amazing knowledge and then you depart that elite level of the sport and all of that knowledge gets lost, you know. Um, Yes, you impart it on lots of other people that you've worked with over time, but we really sat down and went, you know, there's a need to put this back into the grassroots end of the sport, Mm. um, to not just educate the practitioners, um, the doctors and the physios working at school and club level rowing, but also to educate the coaches as well. And so we've run lots of um, doctor and physio education sessions quite successfully in Australia Um, and we were really starting to get some traction with running some coach education sessions but coaches are really time poor. Lots of them are volunteers and um, they've got full-time jobs and, you know, giving up their weekend to do this sort of thing um, was really hard. So um, what we're trying to do now is put... Um, a package, if you like, of education together that can be online education, and um, and put that in nice digestible chunks for coaches, but also pre- um, medical practitioners and physios to be able to d- to deliver it in that way. And it's something that we started to do before COVID, but obviously we're living in a really different world now, where that's going to be a whole lot easier to run rather than face to face and you mm. know traveling to yeah. to have a whole people come together from different you know different parts of Australia or different parts of the world yeah. as well. So um, that's the next stepping stone. Um, it's been it's been held up a little bit because we've both got really busy through this COVID period yeah. with. Um me having to um, help my business recover after a period of lockdown yeah. and, um, and and Larry again after a period of lockdown having to sort of redefine what she's doing from a work point of view. So we've been working on it fairly consistently in the background. Um, and we're also very respectful of the fact that there are bigger issues than wearing my back pain at the moment with <laughs> COVID around as well in the community. So it's something that we're working towards um, getting in a much more digestible form, but it really is making sure that elite end um, knowledge is not lost and then it's put back into the grassroots that's fantastic
1: i'm um, yeah. really glad you guys are doing that and and i think bill you work with coaches on a daily basis do you think this is something that would be well received
0: yeah and i think as as larry uh, sorry as Kelly has said here, larry, the same as person. Kelly has said here um <laughs> I, the exciting thing and for for this sort of, in this sort of area is that we all understand how much we can get out of um, online learning now. And so it's going to open the opportunity for for this sort of stuff to be much more readily engaged with. And if I'm honest, like one one of the things I always see with coaches, and I felt like this as well, is that often you'll talk to practitioners and it would be very true of medicine and physiotherapy in um, many of the interdisciplinary team environments where the coach Rightly or wrongly, we we felt. I have felt. I don't I'm not a coach anymore. But you feel like you need to be the expert, and if you if you don't know something, um, you, you're uh, it's a chink in the armor. And many great practitioners like yourselves will, um, and and you as well, Alice will feel like you don't want to tell the coach how to suck eggs you know but actually sometimes slowing things down and explaining the base principles a little bit more thoroughly for for coaches um i think is going to help them an enormous amount so i think a lot of this sort of stuff will be very well received and has a real place to play
1: yeah uh, i th- i think probably we all come from a, a different viewpoint on on this and you sort of if you're the athlete you want the coach to be able to understand some of the mechanics of the mm, the uh, absolutely prevention but also the injury that you might have contracted you know and and then as a coach you want to be able to understand sort of some of the some of the medical side of things and i think often medicine physio um nutrition some of those things can be easily outsourced but that's not necessarily what the no. coach wants to, they want to actually understand the parts that contribute to the sport and the performance so I think if you can get hold of some of this really high level knowledge, I think if it was in an easily digestible form, I think it's really important both for the coaches but also for the athletes who they coach.
0: Mm, I agree and I think it's a great segue into into our third topic which is around interdisciplinary team management and Kelly's experiences.
1: So one last thing, Kelly, I've been wanting to ask you because when we spoke to Rory Webster last episode, she spoke through her back pain um, and her injury that she sustained after flying and after travel. And I thought, oh, that's exactly what I need to talk to Kelly about when we get to talk to Kel. So my recollection is that that was an area of interest. Now, was it something you observed that athletes who fly tend to get injuries after they fly?
2: Yeah, when I first stepped onto the senior Australian rowing team, it had already been identified as a problem. And so there were some rules in place where you, um, as a roller and as a coach, weren't meant to row on the day that you travelled. That um, The idea was that you're not as you know, flexible around your hips and um, your low back. You've been sitting for a long period of time, and that can predispose to low back pain. And therefore, going and sitting and loading that low back for the first 24 hours, you know, there was an increased prevalence of low back pain amongst the team um, even before I got to work with the team. in in that time period. Um, But what I observed um, over time was just treating athletes' bodies off the back of travel that seemed to take about seven to ten days to get their normal flexibility back, and um, certainly it takes about that long to get over jet lag as well, and that's seven to ten days of not training well or being predisposed to becoming injured over that time. So they yeah. became pretty interested in it. And again, I sort of trial it with small groups of people first. I started reading lots of really interesting tractor studies about vibration, <laughs> where when um, ah. the tractors had um, seats, like hydraulic seats, when you were on really hard seats and there was lots of vibration, yeah. um, it would pitch the very small stabilizing muscles off in farmers' backs, so and they would get lots of back pain. And so what would happen when they bring them into the lab and sit them on their tractor seats and vibrate them is that they would get really tight in the muscles around their hips and their little tiny stabilising muscles of the spine would tend to switch off. Yeah. And I sort of had a bit of a petty drop moment um, when I was reading some of those papers going, this is what happens in travel. There's a huge yeah. amount of vibration that comes up through the seat. And I was lucky enough to end up being connected with one of the Qantas, um, the head Qantas engineer
3: yeah.
2: um, for, for, for you know Australian airline, And that was through... Um, Karen Faulkner, who is a, a physio in South mm. Australia, mm. and she was doing a seating project with Paralympic yeah. athletes that would get injured off the back of travel as well. And so we sort of put all this knowledge together, and he said, "Of course, you know, seats are designed so that you have less damage if there is a crash, yeah. not to reduce vibration, <laughs> not to grow so
1: faster when you get know. off."
2: Yeah, yeah, they're, you know, terrible foam. Um, it, foam is designed to float in an accident and the seats are uh, attached to the chassis of the aircraft so they don't all fall apart. Yeah. It's like, okay, it makes a whole lot of sense. So how are we going to go about trying to change this? And, um, you know, memory foam is a product that we knew reduced vibration mm. um, and so we thought that might be an option. We thought custom-making seats with the shape of athlete's bottoms might be an option. Mm. Um, we thought that, you know, having um, the support, memory foam, foam support under your bottom or behind your low back might be an option. And so um, we sent, in that Rio Olympiad, we sent groups of rowers overseas um, in different seating conditions. And we didn't have enough. We only had about five in each group, so we didn't have enough to be able to send over um and it was very much a pilot study. We didn't have enough to publish, we didn't have enough numbers yep. to publish the data. But the data was really, really interesting. Mm. Um, we sent one group over business class, they so were very lucky, <laughs> and essentially their spinal mechanics did not change between when they left and when oh. they got on the ground initially. And we, we measured <laughs> this in the answer. You know, at, Yeah, exactly before and afterwards. Uh, but obviously that's really costly. Um, and jet lag, they tend to get over in three days. So we had a jet lag questionnaire as well. Oh, cool. um, and then the seating group, if you went normal economy, it took about 10 days for your spinal and hip mechanics to come back to normal. Um, and and measured those, in yeah, if you went over with a custom made seat, we thought that might be good, but actually you got off the plane a whole lot less than anyone else, and we think we probably restricted movement in those people too much. Right. There was less movement variability, um, and any of the memory foam conditions that we sent people over with, um, you, you certainly stepped off the plane nearly as good as the people that flew business class, mm. but you, you're longer to get over your jet lag. Mm. so... On the basis of that, we were actually able to apply to the Australian Olympic Committee for funding to send the athletes from Europe to Rio in business class with memory foam seating so that we were adjusting for the vibration and and for the, the jet lag effect and that meant we were able to flame really late and we wanted to because there was a real um, likelihood that people would get sick and get gastro um, in rare we wanted to be on the ground for less time and um, so I think there was a real sort of success story of um, learning and observing over a number of years and making some um, changes to have real athlete impact and um, interesting that she should mention Rowie because um, the lead physio for water polo is actually um, a physio that I employ in my Kate practice,
0: Moore. Kate Moore yep.
2: yeah and um, so her and I have had lots of chats about how to get Rowie um, a long distance in a plane nice and safely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kelly, when I talk to Kate more, I always feel like I'm talking to you. It's very funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> she
2: was um, a swimming athlete, but I used to travel with yeah. junior swim teams. Oh, and um, then she worked for me in her gap year, and then she went and did physios, come back f- to work for me. So um, I feel like I've been a very long-term mentor of Kate's. Yeah, phenomenal. And, um, Awesome to work with her now.
0: So, I mean, this is funny because we'd just done our little transition into the third topic and the doc here wanted to hijack this um, with to throw in this extra one. It's fascinating. A tractor fascinating. study leads to um, a whole lot of knowledge and we can either go down the path of business class fares, which I'm sure we're happy with, or we could get um, a, a memory foam,
1: foam f- product, which I
0: have on my car, thanks to and you. And I
1: have yep. on my car. And, you know, Tempa was the, pro- the product manufacturer <laughs> that supplied us with the memory foam seats and they were extremely generous in how they decided to contribute to well we asked I think kelly you asked them but i think that they were very obliging and they still support the australian rowing team actually um tempo were fantastic i actually was in the memory foam car seat cover that sits on the plane and i felt fantastic getting off the plane in terms of being able to um, get into full hip flexion which is never normally the case um yeah. i I Have to say, I I've kept it and I use it all the time. Every time I fly overseas, and when I was doing lots of stair climbing, when we could before COVID shut us all down, we would. I one of the times I think I had 14 international flights in a year, and one of them was to go overseas, you know, to Europe and come back three days later and that's really hard on your body but if you've got some ability to get off the plane and move and walk normally you feel so much better so i think there's a lot in this it's a really big shame we don't have enough to publish but i think um
3: it's I made a big it's a, difference to performance it's, after flying it's
0: something that people are w- well advised to try i think and uh, interestingly anecdotally i traveled to europe with the kids last year and I'm, you know, seven foot ten and have zero degrees flexion in my <laughs> um, hips and couldn't travel, couldn't have an exit row for the first time in my life because I had to travel with the kids. But I had the, the temper um, Memory foam Seek uh, uh, cushion. And I, I'm not describing it the way you would describe it, but I realized that I, I didn't have to hold myself in position in the seat. And that enabled me to relax. relax. And I definitely traveled better as a result from a... From a movement point of view, so yeah, it's the
2: best seating condition. The temper car seat cover, and um, which has got a very small lumber lumber support, and um, they're worth about three hundred dollars. And and you can use it again and again, right? Like once yeah. you put it paid, in your car, really. Right expensive business class ticket, you know, you, mm. that's gone forever. Yeah. And so it's a good economical thing that athletes can can do because um, most of the time they're not flying business class. And, um, yeah, so to be able – that $300 investment is a pretty fabulous way that you can look after yourself.
1: Great thinking and thanks for reading the tractor studies. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a ripper. That's a ripper. Have you got any more hijacks thanks, before Cal. we go on to the oh, – young... no, you
1: can move on. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was brilliant. Well done. So, Cal. When you arrived into the preparation for the London Olympic team in um, at the ETC, um, we were in a bit of a pickle with the crew that I was looking after. Um, Sarah had just, uh, she probably at that point was just going to or had just had her surgery on her forearm and um, you know, we'd had super interrupted awesome. preparation in terms of the amount of rowing we'd been allowed to do. Um, but I can distinctly remember Walking past you in the hallway at the ETC, and you grabbed me and you said, "They're in great headspace, mate. You don't need to worry about them." And I think a couple of days later, they they did a PB on the water over two k, and you know, and they went went on and obviously got a, a medal at the Olympics after a really potentially interrupted prep. And I, I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever spoken to you about this, but whilst I knew that they were rowing really well and I sensed that we were working well together, when a trusted member of, of our little inner sanctum went out of their way to say that, it made a huge difference to me as a coach in that moment and the confidence I then had to make some decisions as to you know, levers I might pull and, and buttons I might push with the crew based on, on that feedback. And I know we always talk with physios around the, um, the bedside chat sort of stuff that happens there. I'm really fascinated to know how you created your approach to working in the interdisciplinary team because it's it's a lot more than than, than physio, isn't it? So, yeah, I'd like to explore that if we can for, for a few moments. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think um, we um, were really privileged um, travelling with the Australian Rowing Team because we travelled with two physios and a doctor and a massage therapist and most of the time got a chance to treat out of the same room which is great from a, from a professional development point of view and also from a professional team point of view. And some people could feel that that's quite daunting, but actually what it allows us to do is when someone walks through the door to be able to go, right, I'm going to have a look at your back and the doctor's going to look at it at the same time so we don't have to do the examination twice and then they're going to add on more of what they would do. And there are no egos in that situation. There's no one trying to outdo each other. It's a true team effect to get where you want to be. But the other thing is that um, it has to be athlete-centred and it has to be coach-supported. Um, you really are part of a very small part of a much bigger thing that's going on, and you have to really recognise that as a practitioner. And, um, you know, that that's really, it's really interesting, Bill, because, you know, I can't even remember that chat in the hallway, yet you can. But what I can remember is being in that room, and mainly with Kate, because Kate was Sarah's Ryan partner, and... She was so well informed about Sarah's injury and what it meant and what the consequences were and you had kept her really busy while Sarah went off and had her surgery. We had this massive, big meeting when I first arrived within 48 hours of getting there with um, with yourself and with Sarah and with I think there were two doctors because we had the ETC doctor yep, as well was, yep. and there were handover physios, so I think there were four physios and we laid everything out on the table and um, you know as well as me, I think we changed our decision three times on whether she needed surgery or not, um, that very much Sarah was a person that we listened to because she was the athlete and um, she was an experienced athlete and she was a bench Able to really, with all the information we gave her, make the right decision. But you had made sure as a coach that Kate was really well informed off the back of that. And so to be able to say, you know what, this looks like it's a massive big thing that's happening just before the Olympic Games. And you're probably thinking, how are we going to get these girls to the start line? But actually, the way you've managed this, Kate is amazingly calm. Sarah knows exactly what she needs to do, and she knows exactly what a plan is when she comes back. And I have no doubt that she would do that and dot all the i's and cross all the t's. Um, and then for them to get back on the water together because they'd both done everything they possibly could to get where they should be, and for it to just come together, you know, it's one of the highlights really of the time that I travelled with rowing to watch that happen because I don't think many crews could pull that off, mm.
3: yeah, and that
2: requires huge amount of trust with a big circle of support around you with the right people it was the whole scenario i think that brought that together it's
0: amazing what we all remember and that, out of that. yeah it is it's funny that you don't remember that the conversation yeah. and it was such a you know you, you talked about the hair standing up on the back of your neck well it, that was sort of when i think about that that was that's the way i remember that but your, your point there yeah. around trust is so critical so we were fortunate we had great people in the team and I think those two athletes and a, and a bunch of the athletes, you know, Alice was one of them in that period of time who were who were smart and got the, they understood the importance of relationship and, and yeah. how, how much you needed to invest because when you needed those relationships, they were going to be really critical. But it must, I mean, you must have, uh, in your time in building up to that, I know that you had a whole nother Olympic cycle after that, but there'd been quite a lot building up to that point. There must have been a lot of decisions you made along the way to go. Yeah, I'm going to operate like this here. This is where. I... Are there any key learnings that you'd share with young, whether physios or physiologists or S&C people working in an inter- interdisciplinary team? How how you effectively you know un- unlock the um, the, I guess the barriers that can get put up towards towards that trust.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think um, there are a couple of really important lessons that I learnt and I sort of feel like it was quite nice that I travelled with swimming first when I was actually quite young and I probably made my mistakes there as a young practitioner and they weren't big but just mistakes that made me grow as a person. So I was mm. able to come into rowing having made a lot of those mistakes or, or maybe not so made, much made mistakes but really made some decisions about how I should operate in a team environment. Yeah. And I probably haven't shared this with many people but what I actually found – most difficult was in my business in Hobart I was the leader I was the leader of a lot of people and because I was running a small business when I wanted to change something and I wanted to do something I made that decision and it happened and I took my people along with me but I was the leader and what was actually really hard coming into the Australian rowing team is there are a lot of leaders because you've got a coach leading a coach um, that's coaching every single crew Um, You've got a team manager, you've got a high-performance director, you've got, um, you know, the lead of physiology, the lead of sports medicine. So you've got lots of leaders. And sometimes I had to really sit on my hands and go, God, I would do this differently if I was in this group. But actually I need to respect the people that are in the leadership positions and maybe if I think things could be done better, maybe I can have those conversations, um, you know, outside the team meeting or you know, filter things in in the way that I think we could make change over time um, in a way that wasn't confrontational or wasn't going to be a negative at the time. And so um, Larry and I read this book. Um, We both read it, um, and I can't remember what trip it was on, but it was called The Astronaut's um, Guide to Life on Earth. Yeah,
3: I've read that,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's a fantastic book, and they talk about how um, astronauts train, and they train to become a zero. When you go to space, you need to do your job and you need to do it to the absolute best of your ability. So if you're falling short of that, you're a negative and that's going to have a fatal consequence or a significant consequence in space. And if you're positive a positive and you try and do too much, it can have exactly the same benefit because you're doing some a part of someone else's job and overstepping your mark and maybe giving too much advice in a realm that maybe a coach should or a team manager should. And it's very easy to do that when you've developed really close relationships with people and where you have really good leadership skill yourself. But it's not your job. So being able to be that zero and be able to go to the coach and say, hey, I'm hearing this. This is something you need to know for you to deal with. Or sometimes coaches would say, no, happy for you to deal with that, but to get permissions. Um, You know, there were times when I didn't do it perfectly because you're exhausted and, you know, you're someone with horrendous low back pain that's just Really sad in one minute, and someone that's just done the you know best PB of their life in the next, and this roller coaster of emotions that you're managing because you're touching people and they're pouring their heart out to you. Yeah. I don't think I want you to well but that was a really great book to read at a time that really summarized what i was trying to achieve it was really easy to see it objectively after that
0: now that is a fascinating a insight because we often get taught uh, or people sorry we don't get taught but i often hear it thrown around about you know permission to descend like you know you've got a you've everyone's got to be able to throw if you've got an idea you've got to put it out there and I always think yeah if you've got if you're in the trusted group yes absolutely but you know there's a time and a place and as you say sometimes you have to let a, a little battle go to win a war in that instance oh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna this is not the time I'm not gonna get the reaction I need here I need to I need to not leave it but I need to come back to it at a time that's more appropriate that might not be, um, might not get you the ideal outcome now, but the best outcome in the long run. That's fascinating, Kelly.
1: Thanks, yeah. Kelly. And I think the thing you said about the difference between your private practice world and the team world was very insightful and also very helpful for anyone who wants to work in high performance sport. To, I think having the athlete at the centre of all of the decisions um, has to be the performance the way to go. And I think if you were coming in as a clinician working in the same room as as three other clinicians, I think now I I sit on on the doctor's side of the fence, I think, yeah, it would would be a little bit more daunting. But as the athlete on the table, you had no idea about that. Um, So that is probably reflective of how well you guys did it and how you felt completely supported by your team because... In fact, all the conversations about you were had with you, which was really, really good at building trust. And I think then you could get an idea about um, the other contributing factors that might all play in. I think that was really excellent that we sort of touched on that. And um, I think coming in as, as a zero is, is a really way to go good good way to go about it at anything, particularly with a group of athletes um, and a high-performance team that's going towards a major championship. I think to come in as a zero and sort of work out how you contribute how you don't upset the um, the flow i think it's excellent thank you
2: mm. yeah well, i think you sort of need to know when to be a positive as well like you know when shit's going down yeah <laughs> the bus is not there and everyone's you know stressed and carried on or you know and you can actually step in and help and be a plus one you know a positive that's important too and um and sometimes you sit back and you go yeah I think this could be done differently you know and I'd like to do that and I'd want to be you know put it in a in a plus one you know way but how do we go about doing that on you know is it for this tour or is the next tour and there's a really nice example of that that um in the early days when i started traveling with rowing you know we used to just sit in physio treatment room or in our own rooms and wait for athletes to come to us and as you know we've touched on before i like getting out of the water and you know mm. the great thing about going overseas is watching other crews um as well and not always trying to change that too much um, until you've built trust with a coach and, that, and they want your input, um, knowing when the coach is happy for you to talk to an athlete or when they want to talk to an athlete. you know, I found that all fascinating. But what became really apparent is that um, you had an opportunity when you're travelling with athletes to form ways of having incidental contact. Mm. So
3: mm.
2: going down and being at the sheds when the athletes were getting on the water is, it, is the time when the athlete sees you and goes, you know what, I've got a little bit of back pain this morning. And you have a chance to go, let's have a little look at that and I'll tell you whether I'm concerned about it or not. Had you not been there, they would have gone out and could have ended up with an acute episode of low back pain. So that was something that I sort of picked up on really.
1: Okay. they may have rode and, their uh, 20K uh, with a sore yeah. back, um, yeah. but they haven't had the reassurance from you that you actually think they're moving quite well. And that pain has escalated over the two hours that they've been on the water in their head and they come back in worse pain. And pain is a really interesting thing. And I loved the way you managed pain in the team whereby often if there was an acute injury, there would be a space between I've got pain and okay, let's have a little assessment about how you're going. I think what how you managed acute pain. We sort of skimmed over it in in our second uh, topic on back pain, but I think um, helping the athlete understand what's dangerous pain, what's okay pain, and what's going to be short-term if we manage it the right way, pain, I think you did that very well. Yeah,
2: and I think that's sort of a team effort, and it's where – you, you've got that massive trust like for me to be able to go hey I want to put a plus one in here and say we're all going to go down to the sheds it's going to be one of us down there every morning it doesn't have to be everyone like we want to get our exercise done for the day but one of us is going to be down there for incidental contact what do you reckon about that and we all go oh yeah that's okay and then we make a plus, plus one if you, if you like yeah. but um, the the what you just brought up Mac I think um, is really interesting because I learned those skills off Greg Lovell yeah. who's an amazing yeah. doctor and I can remember being at Olympic trials with him for London and. Someone came off the water and they had really horrendous back pain. And he and I were standing together and he said, Okay, go and have a shower and then come back and see us. Yeah. And the athlete was really distraught. They're like, I have back pain now. Like, I need to be sitting now. He was like, No, no, you're not going to die of back pain. Go and have a shower. We're going to be waiting for you. Yeah. We'll go over to the men's room. And then I turned to him because I wanted to jump in and help Mm. this athlete. And he said, Kelly, they've just rode really poorly in that trial. Yeah. That's going to influence their pain. By the time they've had a shower, their back pain's going to be a whole lot better. Lovely, nice, warm shower. They're going to be in much more comfortable clothes. By the time they've walked over to our treatment rooms, it's going to be very, very different again, and they're going to be in a safe environment where they feel cared for. We're going to be looking at a really different back, and we'll make really different decisions, which is really, really so intelligent and smart and... um, you know, that was a massive learning from a really fantastic um, sports medicine physician that um, really shaped the way I practiced on teams.
1: That's about bringing someone off their sympathetic uh, driver and adding some parasympathetics and going, okay, let's get back to le- level equilibrium and then we'll discuss your pain because pain is so complex and I, and it's one of the things that you taught um, a lot of the rowing team about when, when we were going through
0: yeah and I guess you only get to do that if you if you're present and and that as you say cal like just just being there not necessarily playing a role but able to play one if need be and I always remember um Daniel kowalski was our um, they call it aw e now but it was ace back then and he would just loiter around the gym and float around and kind of but he got so much work done that way and he, he, it was, he wasn't drumming up work, but that's how he understood the work that needed to be done and I guess that's kind of what you're talking about. When you float down to the boat sheds and you, you're omnipresent, you that's where you kind of understand what the dynamics are and where work might need to be done and where maybe work yeah, yeah. doesn't need to be done.
2: Yeah, yeah, and we had a situation um, leading into Rio that just in my mind really clearly about that where um, we went to the sheds in the morning and um, and I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name but Carson oh, Forstallin yeah. came along and said, I've got a bit of back pain. And when Carson said he's got back pain, he's got back pain. Like yeah. he's pretty, a pretty tough nut and um, would usually put up with a fair bit and I said, yeah, I wish I had a look at you. And I was concerned about a couple of the signs. And I said, you know, Carsten, I know you don't like missing a session, but actually I think today is a session to miss. I don't think we're at a stage at the moment where we need to you know, rocketing to taking your back and putting yeah. heat on it and giving you anti-inflammatory. But actually right now there's enough for me to go, you haven't enough hip range to row this morning. Um, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about your neural signs. One session off might save us, you know, our average days of getting back to rowing, you yeah. know, over that eight-year um, study with low back pain was, was 10. You know, it might save us a whole lot of time yeah. and dysfunction. And I can remember at the time, he and I walking over to his coach that was John Dressing and saying, hey, you know, this is my, my idea and, and he didn't want to, you know, miss a session. And um, John fully getting it because we had a huge amount of trust that we'd built over many, many years and going, well, you know, I, I, I have 100% trust in Kelly and this is what we're going to do and you're not going to go out today. And um, what came from that was an opportunity for Kim Brennan to jump in the boat and yeah. she, over that training session in the in the men's quad, developed some technical skill that she'd been really trying quite hard to develop mm-hmm. um, over a long period of time. And um, so it had this sort of ongoing knock-on effect, which was really quite lovely as well. Yeah. But um, I have no doubt, had he wrote had in that session, we probably would have ended up with an acute low back pain that wouldn't have recovered before we got on the plane to Rio. And so having the the athlete trust you enough to be able to mention it, the coach trust you enough to not go, oh, my God, this is a really important session I really need to do, you know, um, what are you doing to me? It takes a long time to build that. It it definitely does. And um, that incidental contact is one thing, but having the trust to be able to intervene and um, the athletes and coaches to respect that is, you know, is next level. But it's actually what, you know, uh, it really is what you strive for when you're supporting athletes in, in a league elite in sport yeah
0: absolutely
1: it's one of the best examples I've ever seen actually I mean the amount of time you spent in the coach boat or at the boat sheds getting on and off the water it was very different from the the typical clinical role where you're mainly in a, in a room treating athletes I think having the physios um, very welcome and engaged in in management in terms of just preparing and recovering from sessions as well was really good. I think it's a perfect example. So thanks, Cal.
0: And we call it the um, proactive healthcare model now that everyone's trying to <laughs> We're find that, into. But, you know, I mean, that <laughs> I, I do think one of the great things, I, I have I have um, program leaders and, and head coaches in, in the sports that I um, work with falling all over themselves to try and reapportion budgets to make that happen with their mm. providers now. So... Yeah. Um, I do think we're, we're, um, we're well on the way with that. Kel, okay, we've, we've um, kept you up really late. We might capture some, um, some uh, I guess, last-minute takeaways and, and then let you go.
3: All
0: right, so, Doc, it's been... I, I don't know how you're going to pick out of all this. It's been fascinating. Um, got, got some takeaways for us?
1: Uh, really important um, little um, comments there about how Kelly's team helped her, I mean family team, helped her uh, foster her career and in sport as, as a female with two young kids and I think the conversation needs to be had about how we can support more women in into sport, and elite sport, in coaching, in physio, in, in medicine um, and help our athletes go for longer, particularly in involving family and planning forward forward. Um, Secondly, I think some of your comments around the research uh, and massive undertakings with low back pain, I think are really, really exciting. And I'm glad that we're going to be able to see on paper some of the observations I've seen as an athlete and the knowledge that you've had putting it together into some research. The 2020 publications are going to be fascinating. And thirdly, that multidisciplinary team, that um, interdisciplinary, sorry, team, that that Kel was a very, very valuable part of and probably along with, with Larry sort of was a, was the example of how you, as a sports medicine team, contribute to performance um, for athletes. And not, I shouldn't say the zero because definitely you are a very positive and a plus, but how you read the play and how you read the room and, and just how you understood how to work with the team, I think that was brilliant.
0: Yeah, and I look, there's a lot of... Th- Really th- interesting things that popped up that I wasn't expecting in this, <laughs> which is just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, but I, I, I have to say I love the description of how you went about organizing life and family to modulate through your career and it's just such a performance mindset to me I'm going to step into it big time here then I'm going to I know I'm going to ease back but I might come back then and we're going to move in and out and I think you know that's a real example um, for, for all of us around how we use our performance mindset to set up our lives as well um Kel, anything you'd like to leave us with?
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's probably my biggest take-home message. Like, your family's the most important thing you've got, right? And um, if they can support you to do what you want to do and um, drive the passion for the what you, know, what you want to do and you can give that back, um, that's, you know, you've made it really, haven't you? That's the thing mm. that you strive for. And, um, I'm you know, my boys are 14 now and um, they've had some amazing experiences travelling around the world with rowing and watching their mum and dad work as a team and watching yeah. their mum do great things yeah and um which means that i think i'll be great supporters of women forward yeah. yeah. as well so it's it's big impact stuff it's really big impact stuff and um working in that elite environment forces you to do that it forces you to get the best out of yourself you possibly can and to do that you need amazing support in your business amazing structure in your business amazing support in your family and structure in your family um, and amazing support with the people that you're working with at the time. And um, all of those things have have to be going right because um, it really is the ultimate PD. Like elite sports people demand the best of you mm. and uh, sometimes you're only making really small changes um, to make impacts, you know, maybe not as much as what you are in clinical practice, but in terms of personal growth and in terms of, you know, really pushing the boundaries to be the best version of you that you can be, you know, that's what I've got out of elite sport and I think, you know, that set me up for, you know, plenty of success um, going forward in my business being a mum, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and just forging so many amazing relationships We're dealing with lots of people that want to be the best versions of themselves that they want to be as well and um, that's what I take out of my rowing journey the most. The relationships that you form with people like yourselves and and Doctor Larry are lifelong ones. Mm. Um, because you've got that, some pretty phenomenal memories and pretty phenomenal achievements together as
0: yeah. well. Oh, it's beautifully, beautifully said, Cal. It's Kel. been a it's been a ripper. It's been an absolute cracker. Thanks for coming And um, we are looking forward to getting down to Tassie and seeing you at some stage very soon. Hopefully, (laughs) will, even if we have to um, drive the ferry over ourselves. (laughs) We'll put a link to Growing Bodies on our um, Facebook and Insta. Um, Don't forget to look us up on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We'll be back very shortly with a new episode of The Bro Show.
3: Thank you.